Welcome to the Skillset Podcast, brought to you by the School of Information Science at the University of South Carolina and Publishers Weekly. I'm David Lankus, Professor and Director of the School. Katrina Davis-Kendrick is the Dean of the Ida Jane Dacus Library and Louise Pettis Archives and Special Collections at Winthrop University in South Carolina. Her research interests include professionalism, ethics, racial and ethnic diversity in the LIS field, and the role of communities of practice in practical academic librarianship. In 2019, she was named the Association of College and Research Libraries Academic Librarian of the Year for her research into the phenomenon of low morale, which quantifies the experience of many academic librarians who are not getting the support they need for success in the field. Taking a deeper dive into the subject, Kendrick has now documented behavior and cultures that specifically enable the low morale experiences of racial and ethnic minority academic librarians. This podcast is part of our Collective Care series. Katrina Davis Kendrick, Dean of, uh, what's my title? <laughs> so long. <laughs> Dean of Ida Jane Dacus Library and Louise Pettis Archives and Special Collections at Winthrop University. Thank you. So welcome, Katrina. Thank you so much for spending some time today. Uh, so when we're talking about uh, self-care, um, we've been talking a lot about that with the pandemic, with mm -hmm. all of the racial unrest, economic mm -hmm. downturn, COVID, all of the different things. Um, and not to say that the idea and the notions of self-care are new, but we're hearing much more of them uh, much more of it now uh, with everything, yeah. the crises uh, that we're dealing with. And so in the conversations that we're trying to have in this podcast series, we're talking to different library leaders to mm -hmm. ascertain how they're dealing, not only with the crises, but what their thoughts are about this notion of self-care. Mm -hmm. So as we get into this conversation, actually, I'd like to start out by just hearing a little bit more about you, uh, your trajectory and your experience oh in uh, librarianship. Well, I started out, um, I was always in libraries. And so my story is pretty, um, it's probably familiar to a lot of people. What the difference is I was actively fighting against becoming a librarian. So I was working in libraries really when I thought about it since I was a child. I was the helper in the library at um, in middle school and high school. And then um, I went on to get my undergraduate at Winthrop University. And then when I came out, I was thinking I'll just go back. I ended up back at libraries as a what we would call a paraprofessional now. And I was working in serials. And then I um, moved on to, I ended up moving to Atlanta, still working paraprofessional positions. And I then went to a nonprofit, and I and at some point there, that nonprofit, I knew they were going to have a reduction in force, and something told me I'm on that list. And so at that point, I started making this sort of, what do I like to do? Where I I I where what do I like to do, and where do I like to be? And so my two main threads were language and communications. My undergraduate was in, was in professional communications from Winthrop. And then the other thread was, I like being in libraries and I had been doing paraprofessional work for some time. So I applied to two graduate schools and Clark Atlanta was the graduate library school at the time, at that time that I applied to. Um, they happened to get back to me first. And that's how I ended up going to library school. 
when I was working as a paraprofessional, I was working in cereals and, and at, at the University of South Carolina, by the way. And people were saying, you should go to library school. It's right there. Go to library school. And I was like, mm, no, thanks. No, thank you. No, thanks. Um, but when I really thought about where I like to be um, and then combined with Clark Atlanta got and con responded to my graduate application and accepted me and let me know that information first, I said, that's what I'll do. And so from there, I started in public libraries as my first positions were in a public library. But I knew I always wanted to be in academics. I knew it. And so as soon as I got the opportunity and saw a position at Georgia State, I went ahead and applied. And um, that was my first academic library position. And from there, I've just been moving forward. I worked for several years at several campuses at the University of South Carolina. And then just last year, um, I um, was named to dean of um, my alma mater. So that's a um, really wonderful thing to be able to. And I used to work at Dacus Library undergrad. And so to be here as the dean now is um, truly something special. So I'm honored to be in this position. Absolutely. And as part of your trajectory, uh, you have compiled quite a body of research, your, your own mm -hmm. original research. Um, and I think a lot of people would reference your work in their conversations about self-care. So can you tell mm -hmm. us about your work and tell us how you think about it, if you think about it as self-care or if you think about it uh, in another way? Sure. So in my early time, I, in my early days or what have you as a newer librarian, I really focused on equity, diversity and inclusion. And I was very interested in why more people who look like me weren't coming to the field. And so my early work does center um, BIPOC in, their in our efforts to be included and represented in the library and information science field. As I've moved forward in my work, I also am interested in uh, international librarianship. And so I started to become a, qua a qua uh, I was originally what we consider a quantitative researcher with some mixed methods. Um, as I move forward and look more into um, international librarianship, that's when I became a qualitative researcher. Specifically, I use the methodology of phenomenology because I am very interested in why things are happening to people from the perspective of the people that it's happening to. Phenomenology helps me get to that, closer to that answer. There's never an uh, answer, right? That's why we do research, but close to the answer of an experience, how that feels. And so my later work has been looking at morale in libraries and the experience of low morale in libraries for four academic librarians, for people who work in libraries. So in 2017, I asked my colleagues, what is low morale? If this is what low morale says in the literature, if you feel like you've been dealing with these things, let's talk about it. But what happened was they told me stories about workplace abuse and neglect. And when I tell you that, even though I've been doing this work since then, have finished up the fifth study, I still am just completely awed and shocked anew when I gather this data to see it validated that our colleagues are being abused and neglected in their library workplaces. So self-care is usually brought to me in this idea of how people respond to workplace abuse and neglect. But in my research, I find that those things that they consider self-care are actually coping strategies. Coping strategies are things that you do that you might make you feel better about what's happening. Um, things like, you know, your nails, including the things we consider self-care, like doing yoga, things that we think about wellness, marketed well, things that are marketed to us as wellness. 
um, yoga, um, um, eating well, those types of things. Those things are great and I think you should do them. What I would like to propose is self-preservation. My work and my countermeasures that constantly come up as I do this work, as I continue to talk to people is self-care, do those things. And, but unless there's a self to care for, you must preserve yourself. So for me, the tools of self-preservation are being aware of your emotions, knowing how to name them, being able to state what you need to people and what's not going to happen to you, having moral courage to be able to say what's going to happen, something bad might happen to me if I, if I say something that I know is not correct or about how I'm being treated and therefore, I, but I still must say it. Um, being, and that's to me is a moral courage is also an act of self-compassion in a way. It's very difficult, but it's compassionate to yourself because you are recognizing your own boundaries and you're not only you're recognizing them as a human, but as a person moving as more than a human, more than just skin and bones. So that's how I kind of see, that's how I see self-care. I see it through the lens of that cannot happen without self-preservation. Absolutely. I think that's a a fascinating take on it. And I think it's spot on. So hearing a couple of things in what you're saying, uh, one point, and this has come up with uh, some other guests, Mm -hmm. is when you're talking about yoga and eating well and the meal delivery services and any number of things that are promoted, Mm -hmm. it is this commodification of Mm -hmm. self-care. And also this idea that self-care places the onus back on the individual. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what we've been talking about uh, on this series of collective care mm-hmm. is, you know, where is the, are we caring for each other as a community? Is your organization caring for you uh, as a, as someone who contributes, as someone mm-hmm. who does work for the organization? And I think that there's that disparity between who's really responsible um, if we want to use the word um, responsible. Um, So that's one dimension. And I'm wondering, uh, wanting to get your thoughts on collective care and can we actually achieve that? And how, if at all, you think that ties back to, I think, the even the more important idea of self-preservation. Thanks for that. That's a really great question. I think it's mostly faceted when I look at my research. So first of all, I like to stress and let me stress again that in my, my data clearly shows um, that low morale is a problem of systems, systems, and people are taking on personally problems of systems. So that's when we see things like um, depression, negative self-talk, things like uh, Fabazi's uh, Etar's concept of vocational awe, privileging our work identities over our actual identities um, that are much more uh, multifaceted than a library building and the things that go on there for a certain amount of time during the day, whenever your schedule is. So um, there is about systems, okay? So they're enabling systems. And when you talk about collective care, where I would say that the individual falls into this is knowing what the systems are and resisting those systems, asking questions. So as a librarian, we answer questions all the time. And also, but at some point when when it comes to this experience, we go mute. We don't ask any questions. Part of that is library culture, vocational awe. This concept of library nice has come up because we can't critique. We can't push back. Civility in your own work, Dr. Cook, you've talked about how civility and Dr. Amelia Gibson talks about how civility is weaponized, particularly against women and 
PIPOC. If you say something, um, you have to say it in a certain way, tone policing, these sorts of things. However, the countermeasure and the um, path closer to collective care is people speaking, calling in and or calling out when abuse and neglect are being perpetrated in our workplaces. So that's for me the link. And that's why I said again, moral courage is required. Absolutely. So how do we get to this moral courage, uh, this moral fortitude, this, mm-hmm. uh, this ability uh, to speak up for ourselves. Um, and I'm not necessarily even talking, I think part of it is about even developing an actual skill set in addition to uh, the internal motivation to say, enough, I am going to speak up. How do we get our colleagues? Uh, and for me, uh, how do I get my, my students who are uh, in graduate school, undergrad, et cetera, how do we get folks there, right? Because uh, to your point, we're conditioned not to say anything. Yeah. Um, we're conditioned to be nice and to be polite. And, and it's just mm-hmm. kind of the antithesis of perhaps where we need to be. Right. As a leader, my goal is to create spaces of psychological safety. So I think that's one of the keys we need to be thinking about in our workplaces and in our personal relationships. Um, psychological safety is key. So I need to be able to know that I can say what I need to say with the nod to dignity for all parties without being, quote unquote, dinged for it later or it being weaponized against someone later. So do you have psychological safety with yourself? For me, in my experience, I had to create my own psychological safety because there are things we don't even talk about amongst ourselves to ourselves in the mirror in the morning, right? So can you admit when your ego is at play to yourself? Can you admit that you feel shame That's, and, and, and understand that shame is really about how you think someone is thinking of you? You're taking on someone else's thoughts. That's a lot of work. So a lot of this work to getting more to getting to moral courage, which is not consistent and not like one day I wake up and I'm morally courageous at all times. It requires self-reflection. How are you, so because you have to learn how to literally protect yourself and not be concerned. So I say it like this very quickly, show up for yourself no matter what. Show up for yourself no matter what. And only you knows what that means. You only know what that means. You know your morals, you know your ethics, you know what people expect of you, you know how far you're going to go there. Really, boundaries, we like to think of boundaries as something like when that happens, then I'm going to. It really is more honoring. I already know if something so-and-so, because I believe this, I stop that line. You feel shame when you cross the line, or you may feel embarrassed when you cross the line. The key is, are you, quote unquote, big and bad enough to look at yourself and say, these are this is what I value. This is what I know about me. And I'm willing to hold those lines and still maintain dignity for me and the person who might be trying to violate it. That's self-work. And it's very individualized. Mm-hmm. And it's it is also it's an ongoing process, as it you is mentioned. Ongoing. It's right. Your, and that is why self-compassion, right? Self-compassion is key to these processes. And, you know, as I've done this work and I shared this um, with a colleague and um, 
in public a couple of maybe last week. This work has been such a blessing to me. I hate having to talk about people being abused. It is not fun. And also it's been such a blessing to me because it's allowed me a pathway to learn more about myself and to enact some of these things that I never thought I had the courage to do. And I can see that it's just made my life, my life has changed exponentially from the person I thought I was because now I know I'm getting a clear vision of exactly who I am. You think you know who you are. And then when you start having these conversations about what we're talking about, you realize maybe, maybe not. And you have an opportunity to mitigate them, mitigate those those discrepancies and how you think you are versus who you actually are. For sure. And that's important when someone's trying to abuse you and gaslight you and provoke you, um, make you do things physically, make, uh, you know, in, in our cases, what the research says is usually a lot of this is emotional abuse and system abuse. Um, so it makes you be aware of systems. It makes you go and read that manual so you know you're not going to be taken advantage of. It makes you go and look at policies. It makes you go, you know, it makes you go and see. So you have information and isn't that what we're here for? Mm-hmm. And prepares you for whatever. And prepares next. you for whatever. Yeah. We'll return to our interview in just a moment. First, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor for the podcast, the School of Information Science at the University of South Carolina. Interested in librarianship? Then join a nationally ranked program with over a quarter century of experience educating leaders in the field online. From the State Library of Vermont to San Francisco to the Business Library of Oxford University, our graduates lead in schools, cities, and states around the U.S. and beyond. Now, let's get back to our interview. So you talked about uh, psychological safety, Mm -hmm. um, first and foremost, creating it for yourself. If we have colleagues who are listening, who are perhaps on their way uh, to developing that psychological safety for themselves or Mm. or are already there, Mm. uh, but still happen to be in a place or an organization that is not psychologically safe. Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, that happens. Yeah. What would you say or suggest uh, to folks in that particular scenario? Uh, other things that I like to fall back on are assertive communication. I just make it really. I am very, very, as a leader, especially. But even if I wasn't in this leadership position, I have just made it clear. I even have a. I remind myself: Am I being clear? Speaking clearly. And when I perceive that there's a disconnect, I say, I literally say, let me stop you here because I think you're misunderstanding. I don't let things get too far because I need to know, people need to know what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. And, or they need to know. Also, I realize as a new formal leader that there's a perception of power. People think library directors and library deans have a sort of power, a particular sort of power that may not actually be. And so I tend and and we hide this stuff. You know, this is my first leadership position. And I know you and I have had conversations about people don't necessarily know what leading a library looks like. Right. They don't know what that is. A lot of library work is invisible. And that includes the work of leading the library um, where we, we know what it means to lead, say, a corporation. We know what that looks like. Library leaders are generally, you know, I'm still have to talk to a provost. I still have to deal with other deans um, and sometimes their department, their department chairs. Right. 
So I have to be cognizant of perceptions of power that may not be and making those clear too, not hiding that stuff. Another tool that I use is to be authentic. Um, and to me, I want to be clear when I say I am authentic, I do not use my personality and my experiences as excuses to treat people poorly. I eat the chip on the shoulder. People use that as that's just how I am, as if that means that you can treat people a certain way because you had certain experiences. What I mean to say when I say is I am authentic is I present myself as a whole person that does not know everything. Um, I make sure that people know what I know. I make sure people know what I don't know. I'm real good at saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Share with me more about what do you mean when you say, could you clarify when you said, oh, this is the things I like when I'm not at work. I try to resist de-authentication. I don't let, you know, I understand that there's a thing as a BIPOC, I am vulnerable, but I try to make sure people know that I'm a whole person and I do things outside of my job. I have a family. Those people are more important to me. Uh, so certain things like that, I give those sorts of, and I make sure that people are free to say what's more important to them. Um, I think there's an um, op opportunity where we feel like, you know, I have to make, make people feel like this job is the end all be all. And it's so important to me. And I don't want you thinking that I want to, you know, cause they, people tell me, well, if I say this, then I might lose my job. I would rather say, if you have something else to do, let me know. And we'll figure out another way to do it. So I give people opportunity to not center this place, not don't center this place. Right, right. And that's so important. And I think that that is missing um, from a lot of folks just because they're not aware. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about perhaps some of our, our newer colleagues or who haven't been in the profession as long. Um, and, you know, we'll absolutely hear and absorb what you're saying. And, so. and and think, but still still be thinking, I can't do it, right? Katrina has years in the profession. Um, and so just thinking about how do we continue to convey this idea that self-preservation, collective care is for everyone um, in the profession, no matter your rank or mm -hmm. your number of years, et cetera, and how do we continue to encourage people uh, essentially to not wait so long, right? I, I think both you and I have had experiences where in hindsight, we might think, I really should have handled that much, much sooner. I should not yeah. have let that go on, um, <laughs> you know, um, but you don't know that. And, uh, and certainly right. uh, when things are newer and you're younger, et cetera, um, I think there is a certain amount of fear involved mm -hmm. uh, that we need to uh, overcome. But that, you know, it takes time and practice, among other things. One thing that I immediately think about is um, Alice Walker, who is a living ancestor who loved us so much through her writing. And she says the most common way people give up their powers by thinking they don't have any. Perfect. That is absolutely it. Yeah. Okay. So your newness is really just because you're new, it it, weigh, it it has no weight here. It, particularly if someone's abusing you, um, that has no time stipulation and it really doesn't matter. I'll tell my um, six-year-old little one, no one, no one, you are, you have a right mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. without interference mm -hmm. in this way, in certain ways, right? So in way, your newness is a superpower 
because you get to start a new, you get to start it right now. If you start right now, you've given shade that much quickly. That seed, that tree, that say, if you want to say that this research is planting a seed, you get to enact it right now, right from the beginning. You can say, I'm not doing that because A, B, and C, because I've given you the tools. You know what it is. Now it has a name. It has a name. Everything that's happening has a name. So you can say, you can look at policies. You can introduce policies. Are you a new faculty member? Introduce a policy. You can do that. You're a faculty member with full rights to your faculty. Mm -hmm. Introduce the introduce the policy. Introduce the do it. So you actually have more power because you knew you get to act, enact more change. If you do it now, you're changing it as you go. You're mm -hmm. not waiting like maybe we you and I have waited, mm -hmm. right? In our in our experience, you're new. Do it now. So by the time people come up, it's regular. <laughs> right. You're right. powerful. So right. don't give up your power just because you this your first year. Mm -hmm. You're the most powerful now because you're seeing everything new. That's absolutely. And now you have data. At least I didn't even have the report. Mm -hmm. We don't we didn't have it. Now we have it in print. I'm yeah. very thankful. Yeah. So. So many things, so many thoughts. Right. Um, so for those who would say, you know, because you mentioned critical self-reflection, I also talk a lot about critical self-reflection um, mm. and people still want to know, you know, is there a class I can take? Is there a book I can read? Certainly, you know, there's plenty of articles, um, yours uh, at the top of the list. Are there formal channels that you can recommend or would you recommend uh, for people to embark on critical self-reflection, work on that consistent authenticity, uh, mm -hmm. working on eliminating that fear, right? To really get to that point of self-preservation and self-compassion, as you mentioned. Yeah. So anything about Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff, she work, does work for self-compassion and she actually has a free tool that you can kind of go take and see where are you, where you fall on that self scale of self-compassion. Low morale is, you know, the secret to low morale, the, one of the things about low morale that I realized after I took, did the study, and this is the joy of doing this work is that I can go back and look at it and find different threads and pull them out. Shame. Shame is uh, connected to perfectionism. Perfectionism is connected in part to vocational awe. So one of the things I recommend is read a book called um, by Dr. Brene Brown called I Thought It Was Me, but it, but it Isn't. And it talks about the connection between shame and perfectionism. Librarians are perfectionists. And that's one of the reasons why we have difficulties with true creativity, because it has to look good, has to be X before it goes out and la la la. And if it didn't work that one time, we never do it again. The age old, we tried that before. That's a marker of shame. Um, so I would say that another thing I've been thinking about is uh, when you're going through this experience, you're dealing with grief. Many people talk about their experience in the using the using the terminology of grief, specifically Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, cycle of grief, you know, anger, denial, so on and so forth. So I recommend a book called Ambiguous Loss. I find that um, this just come to me very recently, thinking more about this work, and I was kind of stunned. And I sat in my room realizing that I've been studying grief. And so there's a book called Ambiguous Loss. People are grieving their own perception of librarianship right. and how it's not matching. 
and or with the with particularly with the with the pandemic even more they're grieving how do i do my i my identity as a lab reference librarian for instance means mm -hmm. that i stand at this desk and people come face to face with me i am face to face with the students i'm face to face with my library users and my community that's not happening so therefore i must be an awful librarian and if even if i'm not awful i don't know how to do my job anymore my job is not my job. So they're grieving mm -hmm. the duties. The, the, like I grieve very much when I was at my previous position. I was really, really having a hard time with the programs that I had planned and how successful they, had, they were. And I'm not gonna be able to do that. And I really miss my students. And it's very hard for me, even in this new library, to not to have to be away physically from the students to not be able to greet them as, as excitedly as I would, knowing that I'm the dean and I'm here and I'm ready for them. Mm -hmm. And I have to basically say, you know, make sure your mask is over your nose. <laughs> to me, that's a, <laughs> you know, I feel like that's not really, you know, those types of things. So I would recommend and remember that you're grieving. And another one I would um, recommend is a book called um, Moral Courage by Rushworth M. Kidder. Um, it will talk to you about how to enact moral courage and when, you know, moral courage doesn't happen all the time. If you need to save your life, perhaps you should be, a, you know, maybe you should not, right? But it will help you understand what moral courage is and what ways to apply it and um, the benefits of moral courage long-term and short-term for you. Excellent. Those are some absolutely wonderful recommendations. So as we start to wrap up, I want to... Um, ask you two more things. Uh, okay. one, one thing is what's next for you <laughs> and your research uh, in this area? I um, am currently seeking publication for people's experiences of leaving low morale, how they decide to leave these experiences. And I've just been, I'm doing uh, data analysis now on my latest study, which is, um, because I'm a formal leader, I said, well, let me finally, let me talk to the leaders. And so I'm asking formal library leaders about their experiences with low morale and I'm analyzing that data now. That's where I am right now. Um, I don't see, unfortunately, this work isn't going away. I believe that COVID has revealed even more systems and or the exacerbation of the systems. Mm -hmm. And so I have a survey where people, it's always open, it'll be open until the pandemic is officially receded. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm asking people to um, share with me their experiences of being employed at a library while having low morale and dealing with um, the impacts of coronavirus, COVID-19. So I just always continue and I'm, and I'm thinking about doing something which, um, with uh, looking at libraries at um, um, historically black colleges and universities. We'll see how that works because I'd like to see sure. how that dynamic plays out intraracially. Oh, absolutely. Um, in, in libraries too. Absolutely. So it's just something I'm thinking about and we'll see how that works out. Yeah. Yeah, no, that would be fascinating just, you know, because we, uh, one of the things you mentioned about exacerbating issues uh, from mm -hmm. COVID is essentially race and racism. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be uh, definitely a, a really, really interesting study to. I think so too. And so every time I get this data, someone says something and I'm like, I need to look at that. Mm -hmm. And the reason I, the, 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 the data piece was this person was thinking about leaving a low morale situation and it was at a HBCU mm. and they had gone there thinking, you know, uh, because HBCUs are seen as come home. Yes. Come home. Yes. Yeah. Right. Come to your, 
your people, you know, come right. to back to your culture, come right. where you're represented. And but this person was going through low morale at that place. Sure. And um, so yeah. I thought so that would be the other follow up on. Yeah, yeah. What are the other things that are happening Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So finally, because this has all been uh, so fascinating and you've essentially given us enough information for a whole course. Um, <laughs> I, I may have to call you about that. Um, <laughs> OK. What would you like our listeners and colleagues to know that I haven't already asked you or that we haven't already touched upon in our conversation today? I want them to know that my desire is to cultivate empathetic, engaged leadership. And that doesn't mean formal leaders. I want people to know that they are leaders, no matter their title. I don't care if you're a faculty or, you know, the status, your your role. Um, You are a leader. Now you can stop abuse and you can reduce it right now. Right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Do not give up your power. Um, that is a lot of the questions that I receive are variants of, I have given up my power and, or I'm afraid to exercise my power. Do I really have the power to do that? And the answer is yes, it will take time. Librarianship is a profession that is entrenched in values and norms and expectations. And you have the power to change it right now. And I am very, very thankful that my experiences came to me in order for me to form these questions and learn more about them. So now we have names for these things. I will continue to improve. I will continue to do this work and I will continue to improve. And I am very thankful for the interest and support in my work. Thank you. Thank you. This was wonderful. So Katrina Kendrick, thank you again so very much for spending some time and Uh, really giving us a lot to think about um, in other dimensions and just such a rich conversation. So I'm very, very grateful. And I'm sure uh, that this is going to help a lot of people think about their situations and the critical self-reflection they need to do and the moves that they need to make uh, moving Mm -hmm. forward. I would like to share too, if people want to contact me, we do have community on Facebook and Renewers. Um, just look for that group in Facebook, and I'm all, we're also on Instagram under Renewers, um, Renewers LIS, and also on Twitter under Renewers L. So there's places for you to come to get encouragement, and you can always, I am, even though I'm a library dean, I'm still answering questions. So please ask questions when you get, if you come across my work and have any questions, I am available to you. Absolutely. Take advantage of this community. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you.